Amen. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Psalms, chapter number 56 and verse number 8. And then we're going to go to the gospel of Luke, chapter number 7. Psalms 56 and 8. And then Luke, chapter number 7. I hear pages turning. That's something you don't always hear modern because we have the screens behind us. But I like people having their Bible in their hands. Amen. And I like having the screen behind me too. I like both. Psalms 56 and 8. Thou tellest my wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not written, or are they not in thy book? Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Luke chapter 7, verse number 36 through verse number 40. Luke 7, 36 through 40. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman of, in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. The Bible said that she began to wash his feet with tears. I want to preach for a little while this morning on the tear collector. The tear collector. God, I thank you for your people. I thank you, God, for this first Sunday of 2024 where we've gathered together to worship you, this beautiful crowd of people that's come to worship and serve you. I pray, God, anoint me to preach. Help me to transmit to this congregation what I feel so strongly in my own heart. Help me, God, to do your will. Confirm your word with signs following. Let the anointing of the Holy Ghost destroy yokes in Jesus' name. 
And everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise as you're being seated in his presence. Few people in world history have retained such significance as King David. His passion for God and his willingness to fight and to worship made him as intriguing a character as any in all of history. He occupies a place in religious history, political history, military history, the arts and humanities like no one else. His war stories are preached about. His moral failures were not hidden from view. His songs are still sang. His star occupies the center of his nation's flag some 3,000 years after his death. David lived from around 1055 B.C. to about 1015 or so. Somewhere in that age group, that, that time frame. They estimate that David wrote Psalms 56 somewhere around 1020 B.C., a little more than a thousand years before Christ. This Psalm 56 has inspired people for over 3,000 years now. One of the reasons that David is so beloved is because he was not afraid to express his true innermost thoughts and feelings. He wrote of his highs and lows in graphic language that did not sugarcoat how he really felt about it. We read in his writings the terrible depths of depression and grief at the loss of his child. We know of his anxiety and fears when his enemies seem to have the upper hand against him. He writes in vivid detail of the desperation of his longing for God's presence and his voice as the deep places of his heart cried out for the deep places of God. Likewise, we know the absolute joy that David experienced in the presence of the Lord. David was an open book. He was a real person. Highs, lows, ups, downs, failures, victories, success, and miserable failure, all of it exposed in the word of God, plain for everyone to see. In Psalms 56, David was talking to God about his enemies' attempts to destroy him. In Psalms 56 and 1, David says, Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. People are trying to destroy me, God. In verse number two, he says, for they be many that fight against me. God, there's so many people trying to bring me down. He says in verses five and six, every day they rest my words. They take everything I say 
and they try to turn it and use it against me. Every day they rest my, all their thoughts are against me for evil. They gathered themselves together. It's not just one here and one there, but now they are aligning themselves in groups. They gather themselves together. They hide themselves. They mark my steps. They're watching everything I do. They wait for my soul. They're just waiting for me to mess up somehow. You can sense in this passage of Scripture David's anxiety and his concern that his enemies are numerous, vicious, and violent. You can sense how, how he has this anxiety that somehow his enemies may prevail. And then he says in verse number 8, we read it a few moments ago, of Psalms 56, thou tellest my wanderings. The word wanderings here, the original Hebrew word means to be in exile, to flee from place to place. He said, you know how I've had to run for my life when my enemies were coming after me. You know how I had to get in exile from, from, from my enemies when they were trying to destroy me. You know, you tell, you know how much I've been under God. You know the trouble I've been through. He said, put thou my tears into thy bottle. Take my tears, God, and catch them and put them in your bottle. Don't forget what I've been going through, God. Don't let the tears that I've cried because of the stuff that I've had to suffer through, don't let them be forgotten, God. Keep them. Hold on to them, God. Put them in your bottle. He tells God, catch my tears. I don't want my experiences to be forgotten. In John's vision of the end time in the book of Revelation, John also makes reference to tears, if you will, being caught. In Revelation 5 and 8, and when he had taken the book, remember what David said? David said, catch my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And then in Revelation, John says, when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps, and listen to what he said, and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. It indicates from the psalmist in the Old Testament and the revelator in the New Testament that God collects the tears and the prayers of his people. Amen. That they're not ever forgotten. I had a chance to meet with Brother Tim Adams earlier this week. We sat down and had some coffee and we were talking about about uh, actually I was talking about this message I've been preparing it now for some time and uh, and in the conversation I told him about my mother and my mother has been dead it's hard for me to believe that she's been dead 12 years now but uh, but she's been gone for quite a while and my I remember when I was young my father was the one that baptized me when I was a little kid and my dad backslid, got out of church for 27 years other than an occasional Easter or Christmas. My dad never went to church. He had allowed, he allowed things into his life 
and he got away from the church and he got away from God. And for 27 years, my mother prayed that God would bring my dad back. And she would always, she would always tell me, pray for your dad, pray Pray for your dad that he'll come to church. Pray for your dad that he'll come and, and, and come to church with me. And for 27 years, my mom prayed for my dad to get back in church. And then on a Saturday afternoon in April, 12 years ago, my mother had a heart attack. I happened to have been preaching in Memphis downtown that afternoon. And my phone was on silent. My phone was, was off. And when I turned, I got to the restaurant, I turned my phone on, and I realized that my mom was in trouble. My sister called, and we started to head home from downtown, and by the time we got to South Haven, my sister called me and told me that my mom had died. And in just a moment, it was over. And uh, so I make my way to Indiana for the funeral, and I make my way to try to, to take care of my mom and uh, the funeral happens, and then a day or two after, I'm getting ready to have to come back here, and uh, I go to the cemetery with my dad, and we stand at the foot of that fresh mound of earth, and my dad is sobbing. His shoulders are, are, are convulsing with, with, with tears and weeping, and, and, uh, and, and, and I know really it's, it's as much about regret as it is about grief, but... Uh, but, but I, he's, he's standing there, and I asked him, I said, Pop, what makes this bearable? Why are you able to bear this? And he told me between his tears, he said, because I know where she is. I know the kind of life that she lived. Well, you got to understand, my dad's a backslidden preacher. For 27 years, he's been away from God. And so I'm standing there, and when he says, I know what kind of life she lived, I said, Pop, what am I supposed to do when you die? And then I turned and I walked to the car. And I drove back to Mississippi. And on a Sunday afternoon, I was trying to get ready for the evening service. And my phone starts buzzing and going off. And I'm just ignoring it because I'm, I'm trying to get ready to preach. And I'm just, you know, and it does like four or five times. And, it's, and finally, I look down and his brother, Matthew Ball and sister Jamie Ball, they're both trying to get a hold of me and, and pops up a video. And when that video pops up, it's my dad in an altar praying back through to the Holy Ghost 27 years later. And I thought about this verse where there's a vial in heaven where the prayers of the saints are collected because prayers never die. People die, but prayers don't die. People die, but their prayers live on. Somehow God has collected tears. I've come to tell somebody you've been praying for someone for a long time. I just want you to know those tears are not wasted on the altar. They're not wasted on the carpet. Somewhere God has a bottle full of your tears. God collects the tears of his people. And so it makes me wonder when I get to heaven... What will my vial of prayers look like compared to others? Am I praying enough for the things that concern the heart of God? The idea of the prayer bottle. Can I just preach to you a little while this morning? I, 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 I feel like I ought to speed up, but I feel like I'm communicating with somebody's heart today. And I feel strongly that what I'm bringing you is something that somebody desperately needs this morning. The idea of a prayer bottle 
is a strong Middle Eastern tradition going back thousands of years. They have found in graves and tombs prayer bottles that they date back to four and five hundred years before the time of Christ. They go back, obviously, from David's words. It seems to go back even further. This prayer bottle idea is a strong tradition. Dr. Nilay Corrigan, a professor at university, I, I, I could say the name of the university, but I don't know how to pronounce it. But, but nonetheless, the doctor said this, it is known that in ancient times, people saved their tears in these bottles to express their respect and sorrow for the dead. In Iran, it is said that women saved their tears in these bottles when their sons or husbands went to war. Tear bottles, also called lacrimatories, have been found in graves going back thousands of years. One resource said a wife in antiquity might use such a jar to collect her tears of grief and longing for a husband who was away at war. Then, upon his return, she would present the jar to him as a tangible symbol of her unfailing love and devotion. We know that humans cry for many reasons. Anxiety, physical pain, grief, fear, insecurity, uncertainty, stress, shame, spiritual experiences, social bonding, interpersonal connections, and joy. Humans cry for good reasons and bad reasons. It's part of being human. Tears are part of life. These tear bottles were often worn around the neck so that if you ever found yourself crying, you could collect the tears. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I like Amazon.com, but I'm mad at them this morning. I woke up at 2 o'clock this morning, and I couldn't go back to sleep because I remembered that I had ordered about 100 tear bottles. They were supposed to be here Friday. And I checked at 2 o'clock in the morning because I realized I hadn't seen that box. I wonder if it's around here. And I went on Amazon, and it's delayed until Tuesday. And so if somehow Amazon is watching, you messed up and you made me mad. I got a feeling they're not watching. I just got a text from my daughter, Ellie. She said what I always tell her, crying is for sissies. Actually, I say sleep is for sissies. She ought to be listening, not texting. <laughs> By golly. But I ordered a bunch of tear bottles, and they have little corks in them, and they, where you could put a string and you hang them around your neck. They were worn around the neck so that if someone found themselves crying, their tears would not be wasted. They could collect the tears and hold them. They were significant because that tear bottle represented that individual's entire life, the good, the bad, the ugly. Every part of life was connected to their tears. 
David asked God, collect my tears in the bottle as a memorial of what I've been going through in my life. In time, Christ was in an area, and when he was in this area, somebody requested that he would come to their house to eat. Nearby was a city called Magdala on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee near where the modern city of Tiberias stands. Those who have gone with us to Israel our last couple of trips, you've been to Tiberias. Magdala, the name Magdala means the Tower of Fishes and it was literally known as the place of processing fish. The sailors would go out on the Sea of Galilee and bring back their fish and here at Magdala they would process these fish, always an unsavory smell, permeated the atmosphere of this city. And it was here in this ancient city of Magdala where a family gave birth to a little girl who would change history. Her name, as they called her, was Mary. A very common name. She's known to us in history as Mary Magdalene, or Mary from Magdala. From this village comes this little girl. Very little is known about her life before she met Jesus Christ. According to the gospel account, Mary Magdalene was a woman who had lived a sinful life. The Bible simply calls her a sinner. Her sinfulness and apparent involvement in unsavory practices led her to the torment of a life of demonic possession. The next chapter, Luke 8 and 2, reveals a little bit about her when it talks about, and it says, and certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, and then it names her specifically Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. Her sinful life had put out a welcome mat for demonic spirits. And her soul became the abode of seven demons until she met Jesus Christ. In a biography of Mary Magdalene written by author Bruce, Bruce Chilton. He proposes that Jesus' reputation for caring for the outcast and the broken must have attracted her to walk 10 hard miles from her home in Magdala to Capernaum, which is where Jesus lived for about three years. She sought him out probably on foot, over rough roads and paths, possessed by violent demons. Luke does not speak of how old Mary was when she met Jesus. The author guesses that she was most likely in her 20s. Her case was not just a minor issue. The Bible did not say she was possessed by a demon, but by seven demons. The Gospels say nothing about her family. It's supposed that she was estranged from them by her condition. 
Possession carried a stigma of impurity. It was a contagion to them in that time. She had most likely been ostracized in Magdala for her actions and conditions. The Jews of Galilee defined themselves by their devotion to stringent laws of purity that were commanded by the Torah. Their lives were strictly ruled by these religious laws. What they ate, who they could eat with and associate with, how they farmed, who they could touch or not touch, the people they could marry, and everything else was determined by God's law. Mary comes to the banquet because she heard that Jesus was at the house of Simon the Pharisee for supper. And when she walks into the room, she begins to weep, her tears streaming down her face. Somehow, even though seven devils possess her soul, there's something about the presence of Jesus Christ that reaches through all that torment and through all of those experiences and touches her heart to the point that emotionally she breaks and the tears fall down her face. I suppose that there's something different in the Bible when it talks about crying or weeping. You notice that when we talk about our kids, we talk about them crying. We don't say our kids are weeping because they fell down. There seems to be something special preserved for the word weeping. Something that, that sets it apart from just merely crying for no reason or just a little issue here or there. But the Bible said that she began to weep and she comes to this banquet. In Greek influence on culture, demons were considered contagious, moving from person to person. Now that's Greek influence, not, not biblical influence. They move like a disease from one to another, from place to place, transmitted by people like Mary who were known to be possessed. The Greeks believed that she was contagious. Modern American society has welfare and Medicaid and other systems built to assist women who are alone, but in antiquity, Women without families are vulnerable in ways that we can hardly imagine. Many Victorian and modern scholars have proposed that Mary was a prostitute before she met Jesus, though there's no biblical evidence or historical evidence really to support it. What we do know is that the life, that life for a young, single, demon-possessed woman had no joy. It was a hard existence just trying to get by, tormented by the devils, full of loneliness and sorrow. Life for someone in Mary's situation would have been torturous. Very little peace, very little joy, very little happiness, and the worst part, no hope for a better future. Who would want a woman like Mary? Who would take on someone like her? Demons, my brothers and sisters, are not kind to their hosts. For a reference of how terrible the life 
of a demon-possessed person was. We look now to Mark's gospel, chapter number five, beginning at verse one, and there came over unto the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always, everybody say always. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. The torture of that man dealing with demonic possession was not joy and peace. It was misery and turmoil. Living in the tombs, an ancient cemetery. Modern cemeteries are creepy, ancient ones are worse. Often naked, ripping his clothes off like a wild animal. Always, night and day. No peace in the nighttime, no peace in the daytime. Night and day, crying and cutting himself with stones. It must have been a terrible sight to see a dirty, naked man with infected cuts all over his body, crying like a wild animal night and day. I'm going to tell you, serving the devil is no walk in the park. You think living for God is hard. Living for the devil is a million times harder. Day and night he cried and cut himself. No peace. No time to recover. No time to get joy. No time to get your bearings back. But night and day tormented. It was bad enough he was tormented by demons, but also treated like an animal by the people around him. Chaining him like a wild animal. Trying to tame him as if he was some kind of a beast. In another passage, the Bible tells us of the plight of a possessed person. Matthew 17 and 15, a desperate father comes to Jesus and says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic, sore vexed, for oftentimes he falleth into the fire and often to the water. My son is sore vexed. It means he's suffering miserably. Jesus cast the spirit out of him. These unmerciful demons had made this boy's life absolute misery. Throwing him into the fire. Burns all over his body. Hair singed. Putrid, infected sores all over him. Because the devil doesn't care about the people that he takes. And then if there's no fire, he throws him into the water hoping to drown him and destroy him. His body covered with blisters and sores from being burned. He would, he would have been at constant risk of drowning. 
to put it mildly, the life of a possessed person would have been miserable. But somehow, Mary Magdalene drags her seven demons to the feet of Jesus Christ. Somehow she gets it in her mind, if I could just find Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe somehow my life can change. Maybe somehow I won't have to cry day and night anymore. Apparently Mary somehow knew deep in her spirit, if I can just get to Jesus, everything can change. She hears that Jesus is at the Pharisee's house. Can I tell you, there's no place in all of Israel more unkind to a sinner than a Pharisee's house. There's no place a demonically possessed person would rather be, would hate to be more than the house of a Pharisee. Pharisees disliked good people, let alone sinners. They didn't like people who tried hard, let alone people who were reputed to be sinners possessed by the devil. Nowhere would have been more unkind to Mary in the house of a Pharisee but she hears Jesus is there and if I gotta go through the Pharisees to get to him then that's exactly what I'll do if I gotta be looked at and talked about and sneered at and mocked to get to Jesus I'll go through it if, that's, if I gotta go to Simon's house that's what I'll do cause I can't live this way anymore So she hears that Jesus is in a place that's hostile to people like her. She knew that all the other attendees would stare at her. She knew there was a possibility that she would not even be allowed through the door. A woman with her issues, her past, her poverty, Her sin had no place in the company of a Pharisee or his friends. Yet Mary of Magdala drags her seven demons through the threshold of the Pharisee's door. Verse 37, and behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner when she saw that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. She doesn't have much. The best thing she has is an alabaster box, perhaps passed down through generations in her family. It has some oil in it. This is not to be confused with the expensive that Mary of Bethany poured on the the, the spikener, this is Mary of Magdala. It's a different story. You have to do the research to find out. She brings the one valuable thing she has. She brings it to Jesus. 
maybe if I give him something. I don't have much, but if I, maybe if I can just give him this, maybe he'll take some time and talk to me. And so she brings her most valuable possession in case she has to trade it for his attention. The Bible says in Luke 7 and 38, she stood at his feet behind him. She hasn't even got the courage to step around him yet. She's behind him. But there's something about his presence that so overwhelms her that she stands, she hasn't even looked into his eyes, but she starts to weep. And the Bible says she stood behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. This is where I wanted to get. Because even weeping profusely, washing a man's feet with tears is not entirely feasible. Jesus made it clear a few verses later that Simon didn't offer to wash his feet for him. Because when Simon thinks if he was really a prophet, he knows she's a sinner. He wouldn't have anything to do with her. And he told him, he said, you didn't wash my feet when I came in. She's doing something that you and all your holiness wouldn't even think about doing. And so scholars, many scholars believe that just the tears streaming down her face would not have been enough to wash the dust of the Middle Eastern ancient roads off of his sandaled feet. Many scholars believe that Mary washed Jesus' feet with more than just the tears streaming down her face. They believe that Mary, according with custom, probably had a tear bottle, a tear collector, a bottle that over the years had collected the tears from all of her experiences from the years that the demons tormented her, from the years when she was so bound by sin, from the years when she was broken and rejected. In that bottle were the aches and pains and troubles and worries and stress and shame and guilt and frustration and brokenness of an entire lifetime of bondage and sin and brokenness and failure. In that bottle, the silver tears of a life of struggle and abuse, all of her years when no one cared and no one helped and no one could do anything for her, all the years that the devil controlled her, manipulated her, broke her and used her, all the years that she had been desperate and empty and crushed, all those tears that when collected, represented all the cares and trials and pain of a lifetime that the devil had tried to destroy her. The struggles of an entire life, and now here she is at the feet of Jesus. And how do you react when you're at the feet of a Savior? What do you do when you're in the presence of God? 
What's the protocol for what a sinner possessed by the devil does when they find themselves at the feet of God? At this time, there's no blueprint, no guide for someone like Mary. How do you approach the king of kings? And so she does something remarkable. She doesn't try to act dignified like she has no issues. She doesn't try to stand there and pretend like she's a Pharisee too. She doesn't act like she has it all together. She doesn't try to act like she's important. She opens the seal on her tear bottle. And along with the tears streaming down her face, she pours out all the trials and tribulations of a miserable, broken, tortured life on the feet of a Savior. All of her pains, all of her suffering, all of her grief, her anxiety, her shame, her guilt, all the actions, everything that had ever drove her to tears, she pours her entire life out on the feet of her last hope for a decent life. And Jesus is not offended one little bit by her tears. He's only offended by the Pharisee who thinks that she's not good enough. David said, you have my tears in your bottle. The revelator said, you've collected the prayers of the saints in vials, golden vials in heaven. Can I tell you today that Jesus is the tear collector? The writer of Hebrews said, For we have not a high priest who cannot be touched by the feelings of our infirmities. He's not the kind of God that says, You're not good enough for me. He's touched by the feeling of your humanity. Well, if I get my life together, I'll come to God. He says, bring your tear bottle to me. I want all of your experiences. Tell me about all your failures, all the stuff you've been through. Pour it out at my feet. And I'll turn your life around. Don't try to hide it from me. Don't try to act like a Pharisee. Don't try to act like Simon. Don't try to act like everything's perfect. Bring it to my feet and pour it out at my feet. He's your tear collector. The apostle Peter, he said, casting all your cares on him. For he careth for you. Your eyes are closed all over this place. Do 
you're carrying a burden that you don't have to carry. You're holding on to grief that you don't have to hold on to. You're carrying shame that you don't have to. But you can't come to Jesus and act like a Pharisee and expect the tear collector to be able to help you. You got to stand at his feet and open that bottle and pour your life experiences out at his feet. Brother Wilson, it was that Mary of Magdala that had been possessed by seven devils that was a sinner that got to show up at the grave of Jesus at the resurrection mentioned by name mentioned by name at the resurrection because if you'll meet him at his feet you can meet him in his resurrection He's the tear collector this morning. He's the tear collector. All those nights you cried yourself to sleep feeling like nobody cared. He's your tear collector. All those wounds that you've carried in your spirit all over the years. He's your tear collector. All those times you didn't feel worthy enough. All those times you didn't feel clean enough. All those times you knew somebody else would say something. He is your tear collector this morning. Oh, I feel the presence of the Lord here. You all know me. You know I'm not normally moved emotionally like this when I'm preaching, but I feel like God is trying to connect with somebody in this place that's been tortured by a life. And you think there's no way that I could ever be good enough for Jesus. He doesn't ask you to be good enough. He asks you to come to his feet and pour your tears out, your whole life experience oh God thank you for being my tear collector thank you God because all the things that I've been hurt by and wounded by and broken by inflicted by others and inflicted by myself God, I just want to thank you because you are my tear collector. God, I don't know. I don't know what else to say or do this morning, God. But I can't help but feel, Lord, that somewhere within the spaces between these pews are people that need to come to your feet and pour their life out. 
Not to try to hide it so we don't look vulnerable in front of people. Not to come and pretend like we're as good as Simon. But God, to open the seal on our tears and pour out our tears on our tear collector. The altar's open right now. If anybody wants to step out, I'm not just talking about sin. I'm talking about any experience, anything, any, anything you've carried, any weight, any burden. But don't bring it to him and act like Simon. Bring it to him and act like Mary. She doesn't even speak a word in the entire passage. All she does is pour her tears on his feet. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, come on. There's room at the altar for you. Your life may not be as dramatic as Mary's. But I got a feeling that her life was put there to show that if he'll do it for her with all of her mess, he'll certainly do it for you. to you, tear collector. I'm bringing my fears and my doubts and my shame and my guilt, my anxieties and my stress, all the things, God, all the things that make up my life story, the good, the bad, and I pour my life out at your feet. Because you're the tear collector. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, yes, Lord. That's right. Just talk to him. Just pour your tears out to him.
made her mind up. I don't know that she really poured out the tears out of that tear bottle. She may have been so broken that she broke the bottle. Just like the alabaster box was broken to pour out the ointment, perhaps she broke the tear bottle saying, I don't need this anymore. Pastor mentioned something about finding in the tombs and in the grave sites, archaeologists finding tear bottles, no doubt still full of tears. But don't take your tear bottle to the grave. Break it open and pour it out upon the feet of Jesus. Because you're not going to need tear bottles once you've come to Jesus. He's going to wipe all the tears away from our eyes. John saw that. He said the Lord wiped all the tears from their eyes. If we bring our tears to him now, we won't need a tear bottle in heaven. Can you say amen? Thank you, Jesus. You don't need to take your bottle to the grave. Break it open. Break your heart open. Pour it out to Jesus today because he cares for you. What a beautiful message this morning. I'm so, so glad for the mercies of God. If there's anybody here today that has not obeyed the gospel, I challenge you. Do what Peter said. Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. We can pour those tears out in repentance, but then go on and get buried in the name of Jesus and let God wash those sins away and let him fill you with the Holy Ghost. Then you can break that tear bottle forever and know that God has got a reward waiting for you in glory. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, I challenge you today. Find somebody and say, hey, I need to be baptized. I need to repent. I need the Holy Ghost. Whatever it is you need today, Jesus is here. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the word today. We pray, God, that it will penetrate every heart. Lord, that not only will we break the bottle of tears, but we will break open our hearts and pour them out to you, knowing that if we surrender our life to you, you've got a much better plan for us. The spirits of the enemy leave and your spirit comes in, and we thank you for that change and transformation. Touch each heart today. Touch each life today. Keep us in your will, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. God bless you. We look forward to you being with us tonight at 6.30, 6 o'clock in the prayer room. Let's come expecting a great move of God. Shake hands and greet one another in the name of Jesus. If you're a first-time guest, please go all the way back through the prayer room, back to the meet and greet area, meet our pastor and his wife, church leaders. They want to give you a gift today in Jesus' name.